Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. Uh, happy January the 4th, 2021, the first regular weekly daily show of, of 2021. Of course, the news is dominated by the increasingly bizarre antics of the current president, whose name I'm not going to mention on this show hopefully ever again. Uh, and meanwhile, um, the Biden administration uh, is becoming more and more imminent and real. Um, today, I want to talk about immigration policy uh, and American history of immigration. Uh, earlier in December, um, Biden announced that a guy called Alejandro Mayorkas, who would be the director of citizenship and immigration, uh, in his new administration. Um, and uh, Mayorkas is a rather controversial pick for a number of reasons. Uh, my guest today on the show, uh, Elliot Young, who is one of America's leading experts on immigration, was particularly troubled, I think, by Mayorkas and by the fact that uh, he fears that the Biden's immigration policy might be a return to a the Obama policy, which was pretty disastrous. Um, Elliot, uh, you're already making me miserable in, in January 2021, just when I was looking forward to a, a Joe Biden administration. You're suggesting at least when it comes to immigration, things might represent a step backwards. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we all want to keep hope alive and, and hope that Biden will represent a change. Um, but the, there is, it'll definitely represent a change in terms of rhetoric from what Trump has been inflicting on us for the last four years. But if we look at immigration policy over the last 140 years, we could see, uh, and over the last 10, 15 years, and particularly, we could see bipartisan policies to criminalize immigrants bipartisan policy to increasingly detain and incarcerate immigrants. And given that Biden was in the Obama administration, which has the dubious honor of in deporting and incarcerating the largest number of immigrants in the history of the United States, um, it leads one to, to have some caution about what the, the future holds. There'll be a lot of people watching this, Elliot, who'll be very troubled with what you're saying, who have who've chosen perhaps not to acknowledge the troubling nature of the Biden administration when it comes to immigration. This chart makes it pretty clear that uh, the removals and return of, of Mexicans and, and, and other Latin Americans uh, reached its high point in, in, uh, under the Obama administration. Um, your new book, Forever Prisoners, which is a, a historical overview uh, of American immigration policy over the last century, 
suggests that that the Obama policy is again very much in keeping with American history. Uh, how much worse was the Obama policy than the Trump policy when it came to immigration? So, in terms of numbers of people deported, um, Obama was is deported far more people than um, than Trump did. And is that perhaps of- because he's simply more competent? Well, certainly, I think competence has something to do with it. I think the other reason why um, Trump wasn't successful in deporting more people is that there was effective resistance to um, ICE immigration policies and the Trump policies, which um, included sanctuary cities. So basically getting local law enforcement out of the role of immigration enforcement. So I think that's part of what accounts for the inability of Trump to deport more people. When he came into office, he was saying, you know, basically every undocumented person in the country will be picked up and and kicked out. And of course, that just never came to pass, thankfully. Um, and everything, everything he's done in terms of his policies, the border wall was a failure. Um, but he did inflict real damage um, in terms of the Muslim ban, in terms of you know attacking DACA, in terms of um, just the rhetoric to demonize and criminalize immigrants. And then on the legal side, what he did was shut down um, the visa process to make it much harder for people to get visas to legally come to the country, shut down the asylum process, send people back to Mexico to, to petition for asylum from there. So he, he, you know, there's no doubt that Trump is a monster in terms of immigration. But um, if you're looking at, at the numbers, even though Obama, especially in his second term, um, said things which sounded nice, um, if you actually look on the ground at what was happening, um, his, his immigration enforcement um, ended up targeting more people who had no criminal convictions um, and and targeting families and the rest of it. So this idea that there was a shift towards we're only going to target criminals and um, we're not going to target families, this idea of felons, not families, is just not true if you look at who was deported even in the second his second term. Elliot, you have a very troubling quote in your new book. Uh, you say about America, we once imagined ourselves as ourselves as a nation of immigrants, but we have become a nation of immigrant prisons. Uh, a deeply chilling point, which your book supports both analytically. You are a, a professor of this stuff, so so you know you know your facts, your numbers, your your data, your charts inside out. Uh, but this book, Forever Prisoners, is also a very human story. You begin with the the really terrible story of of this woman, um, uh, Myra Machado. Tell me about Myra Machado and, and why you focus on her as the as the the symbol of the the, the failure of American, the inhumanity of American uh, immigration policy. 
Yeah, Myra is someone who um, I had worked on her case in 2017 as an expert witness. She had an asylum case and um, then never heard anything after that. Turns out she was deported. Um, she lost her case. She was deported to El Salvador, then returned to the United States. This is someone who came to the United, was brought to the United States when she was five years old. Um, so for all intents and purposes, she's a, a, an American, um, you know, speaks English, um, has an American attitude. I don't know. There's nothing more you can say than except for having the, the paperwork. She's an American, had three U.S. citizen children. So she returns. Who, uh, who we see in these photos, particularly lovely children. Um, and as you say, I don't know what an American looks like, but she looks as American as anybody else. She certainly looks more American than me, not that I'm an American. But anyway. Uh, she he, looks, right, she looks and, and sounds like an American, and her attitude is very much, you know, like, I have the right to um, protest for my rights. So she was sent back to El Salvador, was living in a community where she was being threatened um, by gangs with sexual assault. And You might just, uh, sorry to jump in here, Elliot, you might just briefly go over the story of how she was picked up which is again it's a it's a typical story but when you see the faces of these people it brings home the injustice of it all yeah so it was 2015 um it was uh, around uh, you know christmas time she was shopping at a hobby lobby her son um the older son had left his glasses there so they returned to go back to pick up the glasses. And she was picked up because um, she, according to the police, had failed to yield to oncoming traffic. So a very minor traffic violation. One, I'm sure every single person in the United States at one time or another has committed. When they picked her up, they, on this traffic violation, um, they brought her to the station and there was someone there who was authorized as um, an immigration officer. And this was part of these agreements that expanded under the Obama administration to basically authorize local law enforcement as immigration agents. So they found out then that um, when they checked her immigration status, that she in fact did not have the, um, she did not have paperwork, she was not legal in the country. And um, part of the problem stemmed back to uh, a conviction that had happened 10 years earlier. When she was 18 years old, she wrote a hot, she wrote a fraudulent check. It was a hot check charge. She went to a diversion program um, and had settled that, that matter. So at that point in 2005, um, her immigration status wasn't, wasn't part of the criminal proceedings. And what had changed between 2005 and 2015 is this increasing meshing of immigration and criminal law. So uh, and, and that's the point of your book is that we have this convergence essentially of immigration and criminal law. So the whole of the country in many senses, and at least in a symbolic sense, has become a prison. And appropriately enough, here we have a photo of her two of her children and her mother and her sister. Is that outside of jail where she was kept? Yeah, this is um, when I went down in 2019 in, um, in 
April for, or in, in May, I believe it was, for a hearing, immigration hearing, to, to testify as an expert witness. Um, her children were there. This is an ICE facility that's run by a private prison corporation, the Geo Corporation. And, um, and in fact, when I took this photograph, guards came out and threatened to arrest us for photographing. Well, I hope the, they'll threaten to arrest us for showing this photo. And, and, and here we have an image of, of, of her in court with her children when she was sent away. And again, just to remind our audience, at least those people watching as opposed to listening, um, this is an all-American, or, or, or for all intents and purposes, an all-American woman. So what we have is, is it, some people, Elliot, have tried to compare America to late 19th century or Soviet Russia. And it, it, in some senses, the whole country is being turned into some vast prison camp, uh, uh, an American version of Siberia. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, if we look at mass incarceration, of course, we're not just talking about immigrants who are being put in prison, but we're talking about largely black and brown men. Right. Um, more than 2 million um, who have in the last, since the 1980s, been, been put in prison. So immigrants are part of that. And if you look at actually the, the kinds of immigrants who are incarcerated, they also tend to be largely, almost entirely, black and brown men. I think Myra, of course, as a woman, um, is somewhat of an exception in, in, in that case. So what happens with her she gets sent, she gets deported to uh, El Salvador, is a, attacked by gangs, harassed by gangs. She comes back into the country um, without documentation, is living in Arkansas with her children. And she gets picked up again on another traffic, um, traffic violation. And they, of course, discover that she had um, already been deported. So she sent to Louisiana to that um, ICE detention facility run by GEO. Um, is that and, a former slave plantation or is that another one in Louisiana? That's another one in Louisiana, but this, um, this is in a rural part of Gina, Louisiana, which is very far from um, any of the lawyers who, who could help her. And they, the ICE detention facilities are, and uh, prisons in general are put in these very remote places to intentionally to separate people from their families and from support networks. Um, when I went down there, the pro bono lawyer who from, who's a law professor at Loyola University uh, had arranged for the children to come and be at the hearing when we get there, the ICE um, uh, people running the facility said that the children could not enter, and they threatened to actually call the sheriff and arrest the lawyer. And this is the kind of harassment that, um, if you if you could see that kind of harassment being directed toward, towards law school professors, you can imagine the kind of situation that the actual immigrants are facing in these prisons. And there's been um, hunger strikes. There's been resistance by um, immigrants in these in these prisons um, to their detention. So eventually, um, she you know has a hearing um, in front of an immigration judge. She loses that case, even though in the um, ruling the judge does not 
contradict any of the testimony about her harassment um, or the country conditions she faced in El Salvador. And then her case was appealed to the fifth uh, district court. She's at this point has spent more than two years in um, immigration, immigrant detention. In January, before the appeal was decided, and to this day the appeal hasn't been decided, in the middle of the night, they call her and put her on a plane, shackled and put her on a plane back to El Salvador, where she is now living, um, separated from her three children um, and living in San Salvador. So like you said, Myra's case is not exceptional. She's one of millions of, um, of immigrants who have been caught in the jaws of this, uh, this machine, this deportation and detention machine. And the point I wanna make with Myra is that she is a felon according to the law because of that hot check um, when she was 18 years old. Um, but she's also obviously a mother and a family member. And so this division between bad criminals on the one hand and good deserving immigrants on the other side is a false division. We've created laws that criminalize people for what most people I think would consider very minor offenses. Someone who's a teenager who makes a mistake like she made um, does not deserve lifetime banishment and separation from her children as a result of that. And so the, the book's argument is not... Right, well, let's go back to the book, uh, Forever Prisoners. You suggest that we are forever prisoners today as we were at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and your book is quite historical. You go back to the records, McNeely Island Prison, breaking down um, the ethnicities and the, the supposed crimes of people uh, put in these prisons. What did you most find? What, what are the, the key takeaways and historical points from Forever Prisoners, Elliot? Yeah, so I think a lot of the journalists um, and other sociologists looking at immigrant detention today sort of mark the starting point of this in either the 1980s, 1990s, or some people even more recently, and say, you know, you see this mass increase in the immig immigrant detention bureaucracy. And while it's true the numbers are larger now, if you go back to the late 19th century, you could see that this is the beginnings of the system where Chinese were first excluded and then put in prisons and deported. Um, and then at the beginning of the 20th century, what you see is that the largest number of immigrants in detention are actually being put into insane asylums, sort of mental illness hospitals. Something uh, very, uh, for, for, for many of our listeners or viewers will know, of course, the work of Michel Foucault. There's a lot of, uh, of, of that in your book in terms of this convergence of, of prison and insanity. And, and a lot of the stories in your book and the images are really troubling. Here we have the image of uh, of an Eskimo girl who, what happened to her, Elliot? Uh, yeah, so she was one of the people at McNeil Island Prison. And of course, an Eskimo would not be um, considered an immigrant, but what you have is people who are in general considered others, um, so Native Americans, um, 
other folks who are immigrants, um, certainly African-Americans, black people being put into, into prisons. Um, and so she's one of the few women actually at this, at this prison. It was in general, a prison for, for men, but, um, they did on occasion put, put women in these prisons. So she is the, the, I guess, uh, an example of the, of the uh, of the the Myra Machado of 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 the of the turn of the twentieth century, a lot of the pictures and images and narratives you have in the book of the, in the middle of the twentieth century focus on Chinese Americans. Is that a consequence of just innate racism, or of the war? Yeah, well, in you know, it's a consequence of immigrant immigration policy. So in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act then creates the basis for the first really federal legislation around immigration and the basis for then incarcerating um, Chinese people who come in without authorization. Um, And what you could see by looking at this long 140-year trajectory is that the groups of people change over time who tend to be incarcerated. So in the 1880s, it's Chinese. Um, then you get, you know, Japanese um, people being incarcerated in the around World War II. From the 1930s on, increasingly Mexicans are the ones who are incarcerated. Um, 1980s, you have Haitians and Cubans being added. But the through line to all of this is that these are all largely non-white um, immigrant groups who are well, targeted. You have a chapter on uh, Jewish immigration. You have this story of Nathan Cohen, a man without, he sounds like he, he walked out of a, a Robert Musel novel, a, a man without a state. Why is uh, Cohen so, so important in your book? Yeah, so Cohen is, um, came in, he was from Russia, um, had lived in Brazil, comes into the United States, um, has a series of mishaps in his personal life, and that gets sent to an, an insane asylum, declared insane. That was one of the reasons that you could be deported. Gets put on a ship in New York and sent back to Brazil. Brazil refused to accept him. Argentina refused to accept him. Russia refused to uh, accept him or recognize him as a citizen. So he gets sent back to New York gets put in Ellis Island, and he goes back on these journeys a couple of times on the ship, and essentially he's a man without without a state. And so we could see um, how in that chapter sort of uh, the designation of mental illness becomes uh, a reason um, to incarcerate immigrants and put them in what is essentially indefinite detention. And of course, Jews at that time, um, we think of Jews now, you know, occupying the white category, but certainly at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, Jews were not quite considered white. And so they were targeted along with Southern um, Europeans, Italians, particularly as for exclusion. And so in 1924, the U.S. creates the National Quotas Acts, which are explicitly discriminatory towards um, groups like Jews and um, Southern Europeans, as well as Asians who had already been banned. One of the things, Elliot, I like about Forever Prisoners is it 
It doesn't. I mean, obviously, it's a book against stereotypes on every level, but it also breaks a lot of stereotypes. For example, there's a section on uh, Cuban immigration and riots in Atlanta in 1987 by uh, supposedly, quote unquote, illegal Cuban immigrants. Uh, Is there a long history of uh, immigrant uh, resistance against the behavior of the U.S. state? Yeah, for as long as um, as immigrant detention and deportation policies have existed, there has been resistance. And most of the forms of the resistance against immigration policies has been to evade these exclusionary laws. So a book which I published a few years ago called Alienation is about how the Chinese entered the United States from Canada and from Mexico and from Cuba after the Chinese Exclusion Act, they simply crossed the border clandestinely. So um, there's a long history of that that kind of resistance. Once people are put in prison, there's also a long history of resistance, which includes hunger strikes. It includes um, people sort of refusing to obey uh, the instructions, as well as bringing legal cases against the government for their own detention. So we see that to this day where Myra Machado, who um, has been through the ringer is, and when she was in ICE detention, Louisiana, she actually petitioned to try to take a course, a correspondence course to become a paralegal and ICE refused to allow her to receive the materials. Now that she's living in El Salvador, she has actually become a paralegal and she is helping people who she knew in detention in Louisiana um, to fight their cases. So that- it might be interesting to have uh, to have uh, Myra Machado on the show. Uh, Elliot, we, we, we began with a, a reference to Alejandro Mayorkas as the Biden's new point person at citizenship and immigration. And I was struck by another piece um, uh, earlier last month Tom Cotton accusing my, um, you know, the left is accusing Mayorkas of repeating by uh, Obama policy. And from the right, we have a critique from Cotton claiming that Mayorkas was guilty of selling green cards to Chinese nationals. Do you fear a, a, a reappearance of violent anti-Chinese and East Asian uh feeling, particularly when it comes to immigration, in, in an age in which China is moving ahead of America in economic and political terms? Yeah. And of course, you know, Trump has been the, the leader of this anti-Chinese um, drumbeat um, calling, you know, the coronavirus the Chinese flu. But what's um, more disturbing from my perspective is that some of the Democrats um, have also picked up on this. Um, Who like? Give me some names, Elliot. Well, I think, you know, even even Biden um, talking about the 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 threat of China to the United States. Wow. And, it seems to me to be somewhat of a corpse. I don't know who's holding him up. Who, who, who is controlling his policy and thinking when it comes to immigration? Well, that's a good question. I don't I don't know precisely, but the people that who do you fear, Mallorcas or are there people behind Mallorca? Yeah, well, one of the people he has um, he has chosen as an advisor on um, on immigration is Cecilia Munoz, 
who in 2011 defended the separation of children from their parents. So that is disturbing to know that one of the advisors to him on this crucial issue is someone who defends a policy that everyone now recognizes completely immoral and unjust. Um, it's interesting, Elliot, that we have, for better or worse, an obsession in, in early 2021 with ethnic identity. A lot of people are keeping score with the number of African-Americans and Hispanics and other ethnic groups appointed the Biden administration. But Mayorkas, who is a, a Latin immigrant Jew, seems to have a bad record. The woman you just mentioned has a Hispanic name. I don't know much about her. Should we be less obsessed with ethnic identity when it comes to these policymakers? I mean, who, who well, is for an enlightened policy person when it comes to immigration? The worst use of diversity is to put people who might represent or in their identities are marginalized, come from marginalized ethnic groups, but whose policies actually undermine the interests of those same groups. And so, yeah, just having um, Latinos or African-Americans or women in um, positions of power is not for me in and of itself um, the gonna resolve the longstanding problems we have. We have to look at what policies these people support and recognize that there's also a diversity of political opinion among these groups. It's kind of racist to believe that just because someone is black that they are going to um, have a particular political orientation. There are, um, you know, Clarence Thomas, there are lots of um, black folks who would pursue policies and have ideas which I think um, I would th think are putting the cause of, of black people and, uh, and racially marginalized groups um, uh, behind. So I think we need to not just um, laud the, uh, the, the uh, selection of people based on their ethnicity, but actually look at their policies. And there are plenty uh, uh, yeah, of... Let's end positively. Yesterday, we had a conversation with four writers all written about America and geography and the land. Do Americans, in broad philosophical terms, need to rethink the idea of American soil when it comes to citizenship? I mean, we can come up with all sorts of policy initiatives, which are rather boring. Um, is there a need for a philosophical rethink of America as an idea, as a place, as geography? Absolutely. And I think what, you know, more broadly, we have to rethink the nation state, which is a historical formation, the modern nation state, which emerged at a particular time in history. And um, in many ways, the nation state is an archaic form. And what we have now are millions of people in this country who are living without any rights whatsoever because of this idea that citizenship um, and legal migration should determine your rights. And I think moving towards an idea that people living in your community should all have human rights, should all have civil rights, is, is where we should be heading. And as you said, that's a philosophical shift that we have now. And also recognizing that in truth, unless you're a Native American, the rest of us are immigrants on this land. So the idea of 
we're here, this is ours, and we're going to shut the doors behind everyone else is really um, a, a lack of understanding of the historical legacy of this place. Elliot, uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, I, I appreciate your openness. Your book, Forever Prisoners, is a, is a troubling read, but an essential read for anyone who cares about the hypocrisy and the immorality of American immigration policy and the persecution of, 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 of immigrants like uh, Myra Machado. Uh, in addition, Elliot, we're, we're still in lockdown. You're in Portland, um, up, up the road from me in Berkeley in, in early January 2021. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book? So I've been very involved in local policing issues, which has been become national news, of course, what's going on in Portland in terms of policing. And there's no better book than Alex Vitale's The End of Policing, which talks of basically makes the case for abolishing the police um, or defunding the police. Um, so I think that's an essential read. And the other book I would plug is Stuart Schrader's Badges Without Borders, which talks about the international um, internationalization of policing. So this is not only a, a situation we're facing in the United States, but it's really become a transnational phenomenon of policing. And that is, of course, something um, that um, we're facing in the United States, but really around the world. And I think rethinking the role of police, um, shrinking the police, um, is essential towards getting back to a freer society, a more democratic society. Wow. Well, radical ideas. I'm not sure if I agree with all of them, but we're great to have some of these people on the show to talk about the future of the police, the future of America as a place, the future of American citizenship. I want to thank you, um, Elliot Young, for a wonderful conversation and an excellent new book. And I want to wish you a happy, healthy uh, 2021. We'll have to have you back on the show in the not too distant future to talk about uh, immigration and its discontents. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. This has been great. Good luck in 2021. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.